Hi, everybody. My name is Diane. I'm a compulsive overreader, anorexic bulimic. <laughs> Very grateful to be here. I apologize for being late. This, this is right up there with the best things you've ever heard, but the parrot ate my key fob. <laughs> it was in pieces when I came down this morning, and my car was at the back, so I had to get out. So I put it back together, but my lo- she ate my lock piece, so it doesn't lock anymore. But you know what? I actually found it funny, except that I had to figure out how to snap it back together and it's a whole motherboard inside I now know but those you know in the old days that would have been something to eat over I would have had a fit I would have brought bagels with me wherever I was going and put them in my purse and then run in the bathroom and shoot them and spit them out and that would have been good for days because the parrot how dare the parrot you know what I now discover parrots parrots literally don't grow up they're like two-year-olds their whole lives everything it's worse than a kid because you can't put it up because the parrot climbed up and got into the keys and I put them higher and the parrot climbed up and got them not my parrot my husband's but that's part of the re- that's part of my recovery <laughs> I will start by saying welcome to the newcomers welcome to the out of towners and welcome to anybody who didn't qualify I love this program I love 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 this program it gave me a life beyond my wildest dreams I'll um, can you give me a five minutes before the five minutes? Is that possible? Great. Thank you. So I'd like to start out with what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. There's seats up front. Um, and uh, I will start by saying that I grew up in a family of five kids with parents and a grandmother living with me. It was a happy family. And I was thinking about it this morning. I am the only one of the five kids that has an eating issue. Uh, My little sister's in AA. But I'm the one with the eating issue. And I thought, how did did that happen? How come I'm the one out of the five? Don't know. But I do remember, um, I like to think that I was actually an inventor. When I was five years old, I invented Oreos. I made pink icing and stuck them in between social tea biscuits. And I remember wanting sugar as, as, as young as I can remember, and I would take sugar over anything else. I hid food. There was a cereal called Trix when I was growing up. I used to buy it with my allowance and keep it under my bed and eat it uh, dry. Um, because that thing, that thing, my allowance went for sweets. It never occurred to me to buy, and you know, I'd see these like skinny girls, oh, I bought a new pen with my allowance. I bought a notebook. That wasn't my story. My story was always food. And I was in um, those elementary school pictures. Not only was I tall, and I'm the shortest of four sisters at 5'9", but outside of the house, I was tall, and I was in the middle of the back row in, with the guys in all the school pictures because I was their height. And I was, I was big. I was big for my, I mean, you know, large bone, grew tall, and I ate more. And, and I, I was... Um, I don't remember feeling self-conscious as a kid. I just knew I was bigger than the other ones. And um, I went on my first diet when I was going to the high school prom. And it was what a normal kid would do dieting. You know, orange juice for breakfast, a sandwich and milk for lunch, normal dinner. That was it. And uh, I got to... I stayed back from college for a year because I was afraid of going to college. I had a scholarship to go study computer science because my father told me to. And you know what? Back then, he was really right. Um, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay home and do French immersion. So I stayed home and did a year of college in, uh, in French. 
And during that period, I came home for lunch one day, which I always did, and I found my mother in bed. And what I didn't know was that she'd overdosed. I thought she'd never been in bed. I thought she was okay. She sent me back to school. I went back to school. I came back. The ambulance was there. The doctor was there. My father was being called back from his trip. She went to an institution for six weeks, and we never talked about it. I was 16. Then they moved from the mining town to Denver. I went to college after all because they, they were moving. And a year later, she killed herself. And that was re, when I, re, and I'm not trying to gloss over it, but I have a long story because I've been here a long time. That was when I remember food became, it was all about trying to diet. I didn't know how to have feelings. Nobody knew how to grieve a suicide in the 70s. Nobody knew how to talk about it. Saying my mother died was not the same thing as saying my mother killed herself. It's hard to explain, but there were two different things going on. And how could I be a child that my mother killed herself? How could my mother kill herself and leave five kids and a husband? And um, what was wrong with me? What was wrong with me that my mother wanted to kill herself? It must be my fault. I took that on. I struggled the most of the five kids with, with the aftermath. However, on the outside world, I put myself, my father, I married the, I, sorry, I hired the housekeeper. I went home, wrote all the notes. I'm the perfect kid. I welcomed everybody who came to the house for condolence calls, took my college textbooks, did all my homework, went back to college. And while I was home, I hired a step, uh, a housekeeper, uh, somebody to come in and keep the house clean because my father was now there. And she was... I don't know what she was. And today I know what I'd call her. Back then, she was a born-again, extreme, religious person. Well, a year later, she's married to my father. And I hired her, so it's my fault. And she hated us, so we never went home again. I'm 17. I've lost my mother. She's killed herself. Nobody's talking about it. I'm by myself. I put myself through college. I, I get a job. I decide to go get an MBA. I put myself through graduate school. I get loans. Nobody came to my college graduation. I didn't know how to ask people. Nobody knew how to say anything. I walked up by myself. I have to say, it was one of the loneliest times of my life, going up to get my cap and gown by myself. Everybody clapped, and everybody in my class knew what was going on. But, you know, those are the things that, that for me, really stayed with me. And uh, MBA school, by myself. Stepmother wouldn't let my father come. And, you know, got a job, and then I moved to the States, and, and in graduate school was where I discovered I could eat anything I wanted to if I chewed it and spit it up. I never swallowed it, because, you know, see these teeth? A lot of money. Didn't want to wreck them. I'd heard that throwing up wrecked your teeth. Didn't want to do it. Every single day, I, I found Dexedrine, which I had to sneak in from the States. I took Dexedrine and chewed and spit up my way through my graduate degree. I don't remember anything. I came out at the top of the class. Came to the States, got a great job, hated it. Hated every day. Trained for a marathon. Okay, now I have something to do. I'll chew my food and spit it up. I'll eat too much and I'll run 12 miles, 15 miles, no problem. By myself. I'm isolated. And I um, obsessed about a guy who I'd known in college. I got the company to move me back to Montreal so I could be with him, thinking all these things would change my life. I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't stop doing it every day. I got a trans. I du- he dumped me and was marrying somebody else while he was dating me. I got transferred to New York. And I say that because that was 1986, 30 years ago. And I heard somebody at a gathering say, if I can't stop this, I'm going to have to go to Overeaters Anonymous. Never heard of it. I was lonely. 
I was isolated. I didn't understand what I was doing with food. I hated myself. I was going to doctors trying to find out what was wrong with me. Uh, nobody, no doctor ever said, you know, your mother suicided. You should, you know, you should go talk to somebody. But nobody. They gave me pills. I collected them all in a box. I had enough to kill me. I saved them until I was 30. That was my plan. That was a really good plan. I figured I've tried. I can't stop the food stuff. I knew I didn't, you know, I, heard, I would hear somebody talk. There was a book out called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It's like, I am so not okay. I hate myself. I always believed that everybody else was okay. And I was, I was an extra in movies back then, and there was a movie called Working Girl, and all the girls had huge hair, and they lived on Staten Island, and I thought, they're secretaries, and they're happier than I am. Why can't I just be... I'd see the, see the people through the window and go... They'd be laughing. They'd be with, they were with friends. What do they have that I don't have? What's the matter with me? I thought I was smart. Why can't I figure this out? And I came into these rooms on July 8th of 1987 at a meeting called Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. And I absolutely didn't understand what was going on. If you knew, I, stood in, I went running in the park um, first and I stood in the back and I listened to people talking and nobody said diet they were talking about feelings I didn't understand what was going on I stood in the back I left early and I went home and sat on the side of the bathtub and cried my eyes out could didn't know why didn't tell any I didn't have any friends I'd moved to New York by myself I didn't know you were allowed to go back more than once a week and I didn't have a meet I didn't know there were meeting lists so I went back the next Wednesday night which was July 8th of 1987 and that is the beginning of my current abstinence and I stopped I stopped chewing my food and spitting it up I stopped binging I stopped the diet pills I stopped trying to think of ways to purge and I couldn't function I was literally like this I had to look twice across streets to not get hit by buses I couldn't I could not orient myself However, that meeting, when they said, you can go to a meeting tomorrow, where, and I, I'd hear them say, where are you going tomorrow? I'll see you at the 5.30. I'll see you at the 6 o'clock. And I thought, okay, I, I could just go in. Nobody will even know I'm there. I'll just go sit in the back. And I, every time I went to a meeting, I felt better. And if you're new, there's, there's something that, that uh, old-timers say, which is go to regular meetings regularly. That means pick a meeting and go to the same one over and over so people get to know you. And don't be... a don't be afraid. Uh, try not to be afraid of people getting to know you. It's terrifying, but for me, that was the beginning of recovery. Somebody would recognize me and say, hi, how are you doing? Okay, thanks. And I'd sit down and, you know, pull something out. But I knew I'd been seen. And one of the things that happens in here is we witness each other. And in this meeting, we don't share. Um, but there are a lot of other meetings all over the place. There are telephone meetings. Um, thank you, Carol. And, which is huge and um, I use them I use them all the time no matter where I still go to meetings every week I still use the program and I got in here and as my I didn't have a sponsor I was afraid to ask anybody I, I, I didn't know what to do if anybody said no I would be I already hated myself I was dumb stupid ugly I hadn't done anything in my life I didn't know what to say I was frozen over having lost my mother and it being my fault you know, what was I going to say to anybody? I didn't have to speak. I could come and sit in here. And as my sponsor says, little by slowly, I thought out. And the pain was 
I used to think of the frozen tundra up in the Arctic back when there was frozen tundra up there. And that the feeling of thawing out was like that. It was the most excruciating thing I've been through. And I got to do it in the rooms with support. It took me six months to ask for a sponsor because I was too afraid. I was going out of town on a business trip. And I finally asked somebody, the great Shannon in New York, to sponsor me. And she did. I had trouble calling her more than once every two weeks because I didn't want to overuse her. And these, the, a lot of the work for me in program has been about, I didn't even know what this meant, asking for what I need. And that it doesn't matter if you get it, it just matters that you ask. And that applies to sponsoring as well as anything else. And just recently I was with my acupuncturist, which is something I would have poo-pooed. I did poo-poo before I got in program. And I have a friend who's in program who's going through cancer treatment. And it's a long way from the Deep Valley to Santa Monica for a doctor's appointment. And I said, well, it's, you know, it's, can, can't you do Skype sessions? It's really hard for her to get here. And she said, you know, part of the recovery is getting yourself there. And I thought, that's the same as program. You know, it turns out almost everything's the same as program. And I discover in here really a way of living. Um, I got a sponsor. I've, I did the steps um, within the first two years because of sponsor direction. I can't emphasize that enough. And I will say that the first time I went through the steps, I didn't feel them here. I did them up here. I had my resentments. I turned them over. I, did, I didn't understand six and seven, but I went through the motions. I made my list in eight, made my amends in nine. Um, I tried to meditate. I remember vividly having a timer and meditating, and my thoughts were all over the place. And I've recently read that... Um, uh, the average human has 60,000 thoughts a day. And I, of course, had to do the math because I'm a little compulsive. There's 86,000 seconds in a day. So it's not a thought every second, but two-thirds of them. And that was like, that's what my mind was like. And over the years, with sponsor direction, coming to meetings, reading the big book, I've, I've, this, my goal this year is to read the fourth edition because I get stuck in a rut. I love the third edition. I've read it cover to cover. I start in January. I read two pages a day. I underline. I make myself find one sentence on every page that speaks to me. One year it's in pencil. Another year it's in purple felt pen. Another year it's in yellow. And, that's, and I like the same stories. And this year I committed to my sponsor. I'm going to read the fourth edition because I know there's different stories. And I know in one of them they mentioned Sherbrooke, which is a little town near where I grew up in Quebec. And it's like if Sherbrooke makes it to the big book, I got I to gotta find out about Sherbrooke. And I, um, I, I just, I have such a life because of this. I make my phone, three phone calls a day was suggested to me in the early program. And I did it. I had a group in, the fellowship was different in New York and part of the transpo and everything else here. But I, we went to a meeting on West 69th, see an, an anorexic bulimic meeting on Sunday nights at, at um, 6 o'clock. And they're the most beautiful group of women I've ever seen. They're, this is all the New York models and ballet dancers. You know, you walk in there and you think, you've got to be kidding. You know, what are they doing in here? And, you know, they're us. We're them. But all of this stuff brought up my, you know, my dumb, stupid, ugly, I'm not enough. My father would always say, if you can just, you know, do your sit-ups and lose some weight. And it was, those things have such deep imprints on us, I have to say, from my experience. Um, I moved... Uh, I got into therapy in New York with the same therapist I have today, um, and she really remothered me. 
I've had her almost twice as long as I had my mother. And I, um, in December, she had a, told me she had to have surgery. And I looked at her and I said, you have a brain tumor, don't you? And she looked at me and I, she said, yes, I do. So she's had the brain surgery. I don't know what happened. It was like losing my mother all over again. So uh, I haven't spoken to her. I had, she called me the other day and left a message. She said she'd call when we could. I'm afraid to listen to the message because I don't know what she's going to say. So I'll listen to it. I'll call my sponsor and listen to it and call my sponsor again. Those are the sorts of things that I do in this program. Um, I also have learned to take care of myself. And an example of that today is, bringing, is finding a, a Diego Rivera mug that I got in Mexico City. Travel is another reason. Um, that I love my life and I, that travel is because of program. I never took a vacation before I got into program. I didn't know how to travel. Um, and I brought my tea this morning because unless I'm going to bring my own kettle, I may have tea that tastes like coffee. And, you know, growing up uh, with British influence, I love my tea. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just bring my own tea. Who cares? I, can't, I don't have a thermos, so I put plastic over this and an elastic band works for me. And those sorts of things, I would have been ashamed to bring my own tea. I would have been ashamed to make my own tea. What's the matter with you? Why can't you just do what everybody else does? I got a lot of that. Well, I, um, there's, you know, I think about the program and I, here's the way I think of it. I watched people who had bigger problems than I did walk through walls that I was avoiding and they did it happily and they did it with God. I learned in here to have a higher power because of my sponsor. My, I, when I moved out to L.A., I didn't intend to. I came to finish a film and I started dating my now husband. I always intended to go back to New York, um, but that was 1998. And um, I found a program out here that I absolutely love and I have to say I think it's the best program in the world and I've been to meetings in a lot of places um, people show up here they are open we speak on the phone a lot there's a lot of service there's this great big birthday party we do and I um, I learned in here that I've got to work my program even harder at 15 years because it, for me, was starting to get complacent. I was abstinent. I um, knew how to work the steps. I went to meetings. I did service. But I needed more. I needed a deeper connection with God. My sponsor took me to a meditation workshop. She'd given me cassette tapes. Hello, that's how long ago that was. She'd given me books on how to meditate. Couldn't do it. Couldn't sit down. She took me to a meditation workshop in New York and on July 3rd, 2003, I started meditating on a daily basis and I've done it every day since and it has been as profound as anything I've ever done. Second to coming in the rooms. It has taken me to a different level. It has taken me to a level where I trust that God is in charge of my life. I um, have a great sponsor. I go to meetings. I do service. I make phone calls. I do my best to show up. I do my best to have a, have a great attitude. And I really work on God being in charge. I'll tell you about the last year, uh, 2015, because um, as my sponsor said, use that as an example of your program. Um, 
in the fall of 2014, one of my best oldest girlfriends, I met her when I was 19 and I was dating her brother. She had lost another brother to suicide. I had lost my mother the same year and we had a connection because, <laughs> because it's a deep, deep thing. We stayed friends all this time. She's in Montreal. I'd visit her. We talked on the phone all the time. She came to see me in New York in October. We had the best weekend. Nothing was amiss. A month later, she called me and said, I have metastasized lung cancer. I'm at the very end. I went up to Montreal. I went up a couple times. I said, do you want me to come up for radiation? Yes. Up I went. I got a stretcher and stayed in her hotel room with her. Totally uncomfortable. Who cares? And she died a, she died a year ago Thursday. I, lit a ca- I, I miss her terribly. I lit a candle for her. Uh, still going, actually. On Thursday morning, I lit a candle on Wednesday at midnight so she wouldn't be alone all day. And I, I just, you know, the program has allowed me to go through this pain. I lost her in January. In March, as those of you know, I broke my leg hiking. And I went through however many months that was of being immobile. Had to do physical therapy. Had to show up for that. In June, my sister found my mother's suicide note from 40 years ago that we'd never seen. I was terrified to read it. I did that thing we've all learned to do, which is print it out without looking at it. (laughs) Took it to New York. Went with that great therapist. Sat down and read it. And it turned out that my mother... I had always wondered, did my mother love us? Did she not love us? I'll finish this up because this is part of my story. Did she love us? Did she not love us? How could she have left? She must not have loved us. And in this note, she said, I don't know what happened to me. When I turned 50, I got depressed. I've done everything I can think of in those days. I've taken medication. I've gone to the doctor. I've tried thought control. I've tried exercise. I've tried everything I can think of, and I don't know what's wrong with me. I couldn't love my husband more. I couldn't love my children more. I think Judy, my little sister, should get a dog. I love you all so much. I don't know what's wrong with me. And her last sentence was, I wish I'd kept a diary of this so maybe it would help somebody else. And that, as painful as it was, was so freeing because I learned that my mother had a disease. She had a disease. Now I can look at it that way. And in July, my house was robbed. I lost all the jewelry I didn't have on. Every single thing was stolen. It's like, how could somebody take my engagement ring? Gone. And um, in August, my other girlfriend's cancer came back. Go to treatment with her. I show up for her. I bring program. In October, I got a notice that I'm being evicted from my New York apartment that I've had for 30 years. And I thought, okay, God must have something better in mind. God has something better in mind for me. My five-year-old niece made me a God box many years ago. When she was five, she's 18. Everything's in here. I write, I take a post-it and slice it into 10 pieces and write something and put it all in here. I don't have to worry about anything. God's going to take care of me. And it's because of program I have that. And I apologize for going over, but I just wanted to sort of lay that out, that my life today is better than I ever could have imagined. I'm really grateful to be here, and thank you so much for my recovery. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Any questions? Hi. Hi. Thank you so much, Diane. Um, I wanted to know your process of resentment and forgiveness 
for your stepmother and your father and anyone else who might in the family? My process of resentment and forgiveness. I um, still, I do a 10th step every day, AEIOUs, and um, that allows me to uncover a lot of things. I spoke to my sponsor about it. I couldn't get angry at my father for a long, long time because he was my only parent. Um, and I, um, when I got, I, I will say my first year in, in uh, abstinent and OA, I had, uh, I had a pink cloud. I, everything was great. My food was great. Everything was great. Um, when I look back on it, I think, you know, I hadn't found my feelings yet, which is fine. In my second year, all of a sudden, my anger came up. Not at my mother, which my therapist kept saying, you know, you're angry at your mother. No, I was so guilty. How could I be angry? But I got angry at my father for not being there, for marrying this woman, for abandoning us. And the image I had for the longest time was that I wanted to take a sledgehammer and smash him to a pulp. He's alive at this point. I didn't talk to him for two years. I wanted to smash him to a pulp and leave him, leave all the pulp there. And I say that because it was so important for me in program to have my anger. I, I was told, you know, get on your knees and read page 449 in, in the old edition and pray. I couldn't do it. I had so much rage that I'd never felt. I used to want to cut people's faces with a razor in the subway. I used to want to shoot people. I had, I was horrified, but I went to the rooms and I talked about it. My sponsor had me do a fourth step. You know, what, you know, who do I resent? My father. What happened? He abandoned us. And uh, what does it affect in me? Everything. And, you know, what is my part in this? Boy, was that ever hard. What is my part in this? You know, and my sponsor said, have you been trying to be a good daughter? And, you know, the good news was I didn't tell him that I wanted to smash him to a pulp. That was the best thing I could come up with about being a good daughter. But I, from then on, I had to be a good daughter. I had to um, learn to call him at the office because my stepmother wouldn't let me speak to him if I called at the house. I'm like, I'm young. You know, I was, this has happened until I came in program at 29. And he, I had, hadn't grown up about it because I'd been stuck. And I... I learned to forgive him and I did what the program said. I prayed for him even if I didn't mean it. I um, asked him how he was. He got cancer in 1988 and all of a sudden all that, you know, somehow that rage and anger went away because, oh my God, I'm going to lose my second parent. And um, I showed up for him. And I, he, he had a recurrence in 02 or 03. I used, I called him regularly. I got him a computer. I taught him how to use a computer. I got him books. I, he separated from that woman in 1987. Um, she still hates us. She still hates us. I can't, I, I now realize she's an extreme right wing person and we, as far as she's concerned, are bitches and whores because we're, don't believe what she believes. And I will say that after my father, I was with my father when he died. I showed up for him. I did service. I flew there. And if he had said to send his wedding ring to the woman he was separated from, we would have done it because that's who we are. We would have done what he asked. He didn't ask us to send it to her. We buried him with the ring he had with my mother, with a pipe in his pocket and a picture of all of us in his pocket. 
um, actually we cremated him and I still have ashes and I, when I travel I take them with me and I spread them because he traveled and um, she wrote a letter to the lawyer after my father died calling us bitches and whores and we didn't send her the ring well he never said to send her the ring we asked him if he wanted anything to go to her no I haven't been in touch with her the one time I felt compassion was she lost a son to brain cancer and I said to my father please give Shirley my sympathies that's all I could do um, today I do a four step on it it comes up in my uncovers in my AEIOUs which I send to my sponsor and I do a four step on it and I have a part in things I have a part in things and it has been so freeing I still have to work on my impatience intolerance and judgment I have a girlfriend had a girlfriend in program one of my best friends from our dinners together and she killed herself in 2009 she could not get abstinent couldn't do it Sober, couldn't stop throwing up. Went from throwing up to Red Bull to affairs. She was married. I, I, dra- I begged her to come to back to meetings to go to nothing. Couldn't do it. I, I still have issues like how could you leave those kids? I know what those kids are in for. And I, you know what? She couldn't do it. She couldn't do it. I'm not in her shoes. This whole thing about walking in somebody else's shoes, it really helps me work on on not judging and forgiving her. She had to leave. She had to leave. I can't change it. And I can pray for her and pray for the kids. And um, that's how I work the program. And I'm really working with six and seven these days. I'm listening to CDs. I really just drop the rock, get rid of that thing you're resenting. It's been incredibly freeing for me. Hi. Um, what's your relationship like with your siblings? And I'm wondering what it was and what it is that they were up there when you were graduating and all of those milestones in life. Thank you. Um, we all went in our separate islands after my mother died. The kids are, my brother's nine years older than my sister, six years older, sister two years older, and a little sister. Um, I actually should put in there that five years into abstinence, I had my own suicide issues. I was in the bathtub, five years abstinent, in the bathtub, naked, in a dry bathtub, which is exactly where my friend Rin was found when she suicided, with a razor blade. And I had a dictaphone, and I said what I wanted to say, um, and I wrote a letter, and the reason I didn't kill myself was because of my little sister, who was in program, who was like a twin to me. My oldest sister, who's six years older, is enough older that she sort of quasi-parented back then. We all started going to therapy individually, and we have come back together. They are my best friends today. We have, I was at a sibling reunion hiking with them when I broke my ankle, and they were amazing. I just spent Christmas with one of them. Um, my parents, my therapist told me, and I didn't understand it, that it was my mother who taught us to be so close. And I'm now, you know, years later, learning the gifts that I got from my mother because I was so frozen about it for so long I didn't see it. But I speak totally openly with my siblings. And I'm sort of the middle of the wheel because of program. I used to, like, how are you, David? Judy, David says this. Janet, Susan says that. And now I said, why don't we all talk on the phone together? I'm tired. I need to take myself out of the middle. This thing about triangulation, he said, she said, I take myself out of it. And I even say, I don't want to triangulate. And people go, what? Triangulate? What a great word. You know, and it's like, that's program. I learn in program. Take yourself out of it. They can deal with it. I don't have to overmanage everything. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Carol. Um, what's your 
version of God? Oh. My version of God is several. God is blue sky and green trees to me. God is there for me all the time. I have a rope. I don't know if you can see it, but I have a rope here. It's, and it's got a huge bell on the top of it up in heaven. And I can just like pull the rope. God. And my favorite mini prayer is, please, God, help me. And it takes me out of myself. God for me is everywhere. And I have worked to see the God in everybody, especially this election season. <laughs> it's, and I'm quite serious because I don't yell at the television. I don't, I just turn it off. I don't have to engage. I don't have to engage. And because of this, and you know, I looked at this this morning. Kenya, I brought her to this meeting. She has been, uh, struggled with anorexia, bulimia, cutting, drinking, drugging, depression, um, and acting out. But when she was five years old, she made this for me, complete with stones. She's left-handed. So inside it says, in sparkles, love Kenya. And then in backwards printing, it says, God box. <laughs> and it's pretty full. And um, I, you know, I joke about, I, t- I time everything. I have three timers. I, have time, I, I use timers all the time. I have to write for 15 minutes, timer. I'm going out in 10 minutes, timer. The kids have learned. When they come to me, it's like, when are we leaving? Timer. And, you know, I want to be buried with timers and my God box. <laughs> Actually cremated. And I want people to carry my ashes, people I love to carry my ashes and spread me out. I mean, I used to be terrified of dying because I thought I would be so disappointed with my life. And now I could die tomorrow. I could die on the way home. Totally okay with me. And that's because I have God in my life, because I trust that God's directing my life. And I love the third step prayer. I'll end with that. Thank you. I have five minutes. Okay, five minutes. Any other, any other questions? Hi. Uh, the question is, have I dealt with tra- I have dealt with a lot of trauma and grief in recovery, and have I ever found that program and the steps are not big enough? Um, what happened for me was um, no change, thanks. Um, what happened for me was I. I'll go back to how my faith occurred. I had no God when I came in here. If there was a God, my mother wouldn't have killed herself. I wouldn't be separated from my friends. I wouldn't be so lonely. I would have had Dave, the boyfriend, who's married the other woman while he was seeing me. Um, which doesn't do much for the self-esteem, I can tell you that. Uh, and, and I got into program, and my sponsor said to me, this is where sponsors, in many ways, are just they're just invaluable. Um, she said, can you trust, I was going on, a, I had to fire somebody who worked for me. And she said, can you take God in the room with you? Can you just for this once trust that God will take care of you? Well, I had to put conditions on it. Okay, but just this once. Really, just this once. I go in the room. Now, I'm thinking of chocolate cake. Really. But I take God in with me. And, and you know, I had the conversation and um, it was over. And she said, so how did it go? Went really well. Uh, I said what I needed to say, and then I shut up. And she said, God was with you. Oh, yeah, right. The next time something happened, can you take God with you? Okay. Just this once. I'll take God with me. 
And this, this became this conversation. Can you take God with you? Take God with you to what you're afraid of. Take God with you to help you get up in the morning. Take God with you to go on that date. Take God with you when you're afraid. Take God with you when you have to call your father and you might get your stepmother. And it allowed me, not in a, not in a bad way, but in a good way to sort of put like a purple shield around myself that I would be okay no matter what happened out there. And, um, if you think of those paper chains we, I used to make at school, that my chain goes back miles because every time I turn something over, I got another link. And my link has turned into my faith, if that makes sense. I have had outside help. I went to group psychodrama for seven years every Wednesday night in abstinence with everybody was sober and abstinent. And that helped me learn about interaction. I had to take my anger somewhere. And I believe that if you need outside help, go get it. Go read books therapists, friends I call, I go to meetings, I go to Al-Anon because I ate over people, places, and things along with my innate problem with sugar. And that's how I've worked the program. I use anything and everything. I now am not afraid to ask for help. That's a huge piece. And I, I found everything. Now I found everything I need in this program. In these last 15 years, when I've really done my best to work it, I listen to program CDs all the time in the car. I listen to one now on step six. I go to AA programs. I go online. I make them. I take them to meetings. I do service. It changes my life. Not, you know, my husband is 30 years older. He's 87. He's getting older. And sometimes I think, I don't want to have to look after him. I hope he dies fast, frankly. Um, don't want a stroke, don't want any of that stuff. I love him, but. And then I listened to a CD, and this guy who had a daughter with cerebral palsy said, because he resented her for years having to look after her and go to the institution to see her, he said, God told me I don't have to look after her. I get to look after her. And that has totally changed everything. I don't have to go to see my friend in chemo. I get to go and see her. I don't have to help my husband. I get to help him. And those are the, it all is, everything's starting to funnel into program. Everything in my life is starting to funnel into program. And I hear that more and more from people ahead of me. Any other questions? Anything? Hi. Hi. Sorry, what it looks like? Oh, eating tricks dry. Oh my God, they were so good. <laughs> I had to, I got off caffeine in the program. I um, have had uh, physical issues and um, my sugar comes in and out. I'm allowed to have it. I usually choose not to have it. Unfortunately, I had a little business baking for years, and I'm a great baker. It's not a great quality to have. <laughs> However, I now have my, um, somebody else does the baking, and um, or I call about it. I turn it over to my sponsor, and um, for today, I have, if I'm allowed, I'm allowed, I can have three bites of a dessert or something if I want to. And that has really helped me because I come, I'll just wrap up, I come so much from dieting and deprivation and you're not allowed to have that and you're not allowed to have that. Different people have different abstinences. Mine is I'm allowed to have anything. I may choose not to have it for today, but I'm allowed to have anything. Otherwise, I'm set up. Still, after almost 30 years, I'm set up. So for today, sugar is something I talk about with my sponsor. I do my best to have the three bites. I go to a dinner party. I don't have desserts at dinner parties. I really do my best to take care of myself because it affects me. And I want my life. 
instead of somebody else's. I want the life I have. Thank you very much for letting me share.